0: Today's conversation is the podcast of the National Association of Evangelicals, hosted by Walter Kim, NAE President. Today's conversation is with Rebecca McLaughlin, author of Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. The topic, How the Gospel Answers Culture's Questions. Today's conversation is brought to you by Brotherhood Mutual Insurance Company, a ministry-focused national insurance provider located in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Watch their webinar, Church Security, Four Major Questions in 2021, on demand by visiting BrotherhoodMutual.com and searching webinars. And now, let's join in.
1: I'm Walter Kim, here with Rebecca McLaughlin. Her first book, Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion, was featured on the TED Summer Reading List and named Book of the Year by Christianity Today. Her other books include 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity, The Secular Creed, Engaging Five Contemporary Claims, and Is Christmas Unbelievable? Rebecca holds a PhD from Cambridge University and a degree in Theological and Pastoral Studies from Oak Hill Seminary in London. She spent nine years with the Veritas Forum as Vice President of Content. And that's the context in which I had delightfully connected with her. Rebecca is also co-founder of Vocable Communications, a firm dedicated to helping leaders deliver messages that change minds. Rebecca, it's really great to reconnect with you and to have you on this podcast. Thanks, thanks for joining us.
2: It's my great pleasure.
1: Well, first, um, let's just jump into things and ask the question, why the world of apologetics for you?
0: Hmm.
2: Gosh, I've, I've been a Christian for pretty much as long as I can remember. And since I was about nine or 10, I have been having conversations with friends who are, who are not Christians. In fact, for all of my educational life, I was very much in the small minority of, of followers of Jesus amongst my peers. And I was used to the fact that my peers were very intelligent, well-educated people who had serious and frankly, very good questions and objections to the christian faith and so you know from the equivalent of middle school through high school through university i just spent a lot of yeah a lot of time with people who i liked and admired and whose intellects i respected who had moral and academic and other kinds of objections to christianity so i think it had always been on my heart to try to make a case for following jesus that was both uh, intellectually credible and um, emotionally compelling. And I then, as you mentioned, you know, you and I met when I was working at the Veritas Forum where I had nine years of opportunity to connect with Christian professors who were at the top of their fields in all sorts of disciplines, ranging from physics to philosophy to psychology to history. And hearing their faith stories, hearing how their research relates to their, their area, um, you know, areas of academic interest and and to their faith really left me in a position where I felt like I had a a roadmap for where the conversation really is at in all sorts of fields. And I wanted to share that. (laughs) I wanted to make that available to other people and especially apply to some of the the particular questions that will usually come up when we're in conversation with with non-Christian friends.
1: So you mentioned early on that you you had this environment where you're Interacting with um, friends and uh, very bright, asking hard questions. Um, did that ever cause you to doubt? And what did you do with doubt? Do you know?
2: I think maybe because I was always in the small minority of Christians. So I didn't have the experience that some people have of going from a, a place or a community that is predominantly Christian and then suddenly finding themselves in a predominantly non Christian environment, which is something of the experience my husband had he was raised in Oklahoma and then did his grad studies in Cambridge in the UK it was a very different experience for him so I didn't have that kind of disorienting experience I also grew up in a home that was Christian and very much a place where the life of the mind was seen as integrated with with Christian faith so I, I don't think I went through the disjunction that some people also experienced it, of growing up in a church environment that was maybe on the edge of it being even anti-intellectual. And then as they became more intellectually curious, thinking, well, if some of the things I've been taught in church don't seem to hang together with what I'm learning in, in this more academic environment. So I, I think for me, uh, I didn't have either of those sort of major prompts to doubt. And honestly, in the last several years, especially as I, I've more and more been reading some of the top atheist and agnostic intellectuals, The more I do that, actually, the more convinced I become by Christianity, to be honest. I I feel like often we think, it's tempting to think whether you're a Christian or whether you're you're not at all, that you're comparing Christianity with all its sort of crazy beliefs in resurrection and eternal life and all these silly things that can, can seem implausible at times with a perfectly coherent secular worldview that does all the work that Christianity does, but without us having to believe crazy things. And the reality is there is no such alternative. And the more I read, again, of today's intellectual atheists and agnostics, the more evident it is to me that, yeah, the the comparison is not between kind of Christianity and this other very compelling way of looking at the world. But it's between Christianity and something that cannot ground any of the things that we most deeply care about.
1: So you talk about the kinds of questions that people are asking now and the kinds of solutions that they're offering Mm worldviews that are out there right now. Uh, but apologetics has a long history and there have been different types of arguments given at different points. In, in some ways, it, our imagination may be shaped by the kind of apologetics that occurred in the 90s with you know, the case for Christ or evidence that demands a verdict. What, what would you say is the, the state of apologetics right now or the, the defense of the faith right now? How is apologetics similar or different to what people may have been reading a few decades ago?
2: I think if we go back 10 or, or even 20 years, especially as the, the new atheists were um, becoming more and more popular, the kind of Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens of the world, a, a lot of the questions at that point were more straightforwardly academic. So especially science being this big supposed defeater of, of Christian faith, which I guess is at all. But, and, and a lot of, you know, trying to discredit this, the New Testament as a credible historical document, etc. I think today the, those questions are still present. But in fact, the, the major issues that people have are far more moral questions. So the, the two biggest ones, I think, are probably questions around race and the, the history of, of you know, racism amongst Christians on one hand and questions around LGBT identity and romance on the other. So whereas, and it, it's interesting actually, even um, understanding things sort of from my husband's perspective, as I mentioned earlier, I grew up in Oklahoma, in, a, in an environment where even if friends didn't go to church, they kind of respected the fact that he did. And it was seen as at least a sort of morally positive thing to, to identify as a Christian. And I think t- today, and certainly in, you know, we live in, in New England now in Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, and this resonates with my experience in the UK as well, that actually, identifying as a Christian, especially identifying as an evangelical Christian, is seen as like highly morally suspect. In fact, you're you're very much kind of on the the moral defensive if you are identifying as as an evangelical Christian today. So I think. Rather than immediately addressing questions around, well, how can you believe in the resurrection or hasn't science disproved Christianity? Or how can you believe that the Bible is true? Those are all still really important questions, but usually the ones that are coming first questions around like moral issues, whether it's racism or, or LGBT identity.
1: Fascinating the ways that questions shift. And I want to dive right into one of them. You raise up the issue of uh, racism. Let's, let's drill down a bit. Um, can you explain how this issue, which is a moral challenge, and we are um, as people of faith, evangelicals, morally suspect, how can it, Cease to be a roadblock and actually something of a signpost language that you kind of director that you use in your work. Um, yes, like help us think through this with the issue of race.
2: Yeah. You know, one of the founding ideas of, of America, as we all know, is the idea that human equality is a self-evident truth. You know, the classic declaration of independence, we hold these trees to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. And it, to the extent that that is seen as a, as a truth, that doesn't need to be grounded by any particular jurisdictional or sort of philosophical background. If that is just the kind of common ground that we have, um, and I think that today, you know, our, our non-Christian friends would, would would strongly believe that they would strongly believe in equality among people of different races, equality among men and women, etc. That they would strongly believe that people who have historically been oppressed and marginalised minorities shouldn't be trampled, but should in fact be protected. All of these. Seem to us today to be self-evident, but in fact they're not. They are specifically biblical truths, and this is something that it's been interesting for me. Something that, that I came to suspect as I read the scriptures and as I looked at his ideas. But increasingly, it's something that actually non Christians are articulating. So I think of um, Israeli historian, you will know, Harari, who wrote this global bestseller, *Sapiens: A Brief History of Humankind*, and he's looking at some of the history of humanity from a purely Non-theistic, um, non-religious perspective, and one of the comments he makes is that you know, homo, homo sapiens have no natural rights, just as chimpanzees, hyenas, and spiders have no natural rights. And he says the Americans got the idea of human equality from Christianity, but if we don't believe in a, a God who made humans in His image, then what does it even mean to say that human beings are equal? And he says human rights are a figment of our fertile of our fertile imaginations. So. Once you recognise, well, actually, this idea that everyone is equal, regardless of their racial or ethnic background or country of origin, etc., when you realise that that is actually a Christian idea, you look back to the scriptures and you see that, in fact, the New Testament is is the the most sort of profoundly anti-racist text in the history of the world. I think um, it's actually the 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 reason, the origin of the ideas that we see today as self evident and uncontested moral truths about about human equality and especially love across racial and ethnic difference hasn't been self evident in the history of the world hasn't been self evident in all cultures but seems self evident to us because we've been shaped by Christianity and i think then you know people look at the the history of the the white church in america and i, I don't want to i'm only talking about america because that's where we are i mean my my country has its own you know problems with um, racial uh, oppression, for sure. So I'm not wanting to kind of cast stones from from a position of any kind of superiority, not least because it was British um, slave traders who transported you know three million Africans to this country So highly complicit But if we if you look at the the history, you know from um, slavery to segregation and Jim Crow laws. Um, you know, to, to the, the recent tale of, of um, that kind of oppression that we've seen in, in recent decades. It's very easy to conclude from the outside that Christianity is essentially a sort of white Western religion and that, um, that there's been this like track record of the, the brutal oppression of, um, you know, African-Americans and Asian-Americans and, and, and you know, a whole, a whole mixed um bag of of racial inequality and injustice so it's easy to kind of conclude from that that okay well Christianity must be the problem but if we look back at the scriptures and if we look at the reality of the global church today which is the largest belief system in the world and the most diverse sort of racially culturally geographically if we look even at at the demographics of Christians in America and we recognize, for example, that Black Americans are almost 10 percentage points more likely to identify as Christians than their white peers, and more likely to attend church every week, more likely to read the Bible, pray, more likely to hold kind of core evangelical beliefs. Suddenly the picture becomes much more complicated. And, and we realize that if if we're going to dismiss Christianity as the religion of the sort of the white slaveholder or the white segregationist, then we're failing to listen to the voices of the the millions of, of Black Christians whom who God has um, been drawing to Himself over, over centuries in this country. Um, so I think, yeah, when we, it, it's one of those issues where, at first blush, it can look like, yeah, it makes sense to say, you know, clearly there's a, a bunch of evidence that we can point to of people identifying as Christians, engaging in terrible acts of race based violence and oppression. But the alternative is not something that grants human equality better. And if we look truly at the demographics of Christianity, they both globally in the US, we'll find that we can't limit our view of Christianity only to the sort of white slave trade, the, the white segregationists, even the you know, um, white folk today who are, let's say, not, not, on, not on board with um, true love across racial difference as the Bible calls us
1: to. It's a very powerful picture of how what appears to be um, a moral roadblock actually becomes a pointer, a, sign, a mm-hmm. signpost of something quite compelling and beautiful. Um, but what would you do with the person that says, um, okay, it's self-evident truth, maybe it had a biblical basis uh, at one point, but why can't I just hold to that truth without the Bible? Mm, mm. It's a so what question. So what if there's a biblical basis for it? I seem to be able to have this view and not go to church or not believe in God. And why can't I just happily live this way?
2: Yeah, it is a fascinating book I read a a couple of years ago by um, Berkel Christian Smith, who's a professor at Notre Dame Sociology. Uh, He wrote a book called Atheist Overreach, What Atheism Cannot Deliver. And he was looking particularly, you know, the the high moral views of many of today's um, intellectual atheists and agnostics and whether they were giving us compelling reasons for those beliefs. And he concluded that they weren't. And he says, you know what, it's perfectly reasonable. Like you you have the perfect right if you're not a believer in in God at all and certainly not not a Christian to believe in universal human rights, to try to Act to promote universal benevolence and and, you know to care about people dying of COVID in India, for example, right now, or people um, you know, starving in in the slums in a in a country far away from yours. Sure, you can do that, but it's only an arbitrary subjective preference. So you you can say racism is wrong in the same way that I can say olives are disgusting, but you can't say that this is actually a, a universal truth that everyone from everywhere ought to be able to accept. It's really just your preference. And again, I think we can kind of be blinded to the fact that none of this has been seen as self-evident in many cultures and across history. And it's it's particularly striking to me, for example, when it comes to um, the equality of men and women, which today most people would say, at least, you know, most people in the West would say, yeah, this is something that we absolutely believe. But if you go back to the first century, the, the world into which Christianity was born in the Greco-Roman empire, it, was, it would have been considered almost laughable to say that women were equal to men. And in fact, we, saw, we see that especially evident in the fact that people would leave out their baby girls to die because boys were more valuable. So there was a disproportionate abandonment of baby girls. Um, we see that actually today in you know, China and India, Two largest countries in the world that, that as as yet have not been sort of significantly shaped by Christian Christian thinking, though China is you know, the church in China is growing so fast that it'll soon overtake America in terms of the number of Christians. And there we see a, a significant gender imbalance for the exact same reason, the selective abortion and infanticide of little baby girls. So, so the idea that, well, we don't really need Christianity to ground this idea of human equality, actually that that, that turns out to be rather a naive way of thinking.
1: Speaking of human equality, this issue of human equality is now being applied in this area of human sexuality in very distinct ways. Uh, And this growing sense, even a majority sense, uh, that would say evangelical Christians are on the wrong side of history with respect to matters pertaining to sexual identity. how do you address this issue? Because you, you have act, actually alluded to this in addition to racism, the, the issues of human sexuality as being something of a more roadblock. Mm-hmm. Um, how are you working through this issue and how are you inviting us to work through this issue?
2: Mm-hmm. Firstly, anytime we start talking about being on the wrong side of history, we have to reckon with the fact that if there is no God, there is no big story of history. That the, there's nothing but kind of arbitrary things happening at any given time and there's no there's no universal moral framework there's no reason to think that humans will sort of be getting progressively more and more moral and that that language is is based on on something that was quoted by the reverend dr martin luther king alluding to a, an earlier pastor than him um, talking about the arc of the, the moral universe being but bent towards justice but he specifically grounds that in the death and resurrection of jesus christ you know, he's, this is not just some sort of general secular ideal. And when it comes to, to sexuality, I think that the mistake that we as evangelical Christians have made has actually been that we have been insufficiently biblical. Now, a lot of people today will say, well, actually, Christians need to start holding less tightly to the Bible when it comes to these issues. Because, you know, the Bible is outdated or people, you know, in the first century, did not really understand um, same sex love and sexual relationships and the sort of potential for that to be a beautiful thing. And so you know today we just need to revise our views um based on on what we now know. And I'd want to challenge that for a few reasons. One is to say actually in the first century, at least you know outside Jewish communities, um you know in the, in the broader kind of Greco-Roman Empire, same-sex sexual relationships were perfectly common, especially between men. Uh, it was it was expected like a, a free man he wasn't expected to be faithful to to his wife. It was fine for him to sleep with other women. It was actually fine for him to sleep with other men. It was completely common to sexually assault, as we would say in today's terms, or sexually sexually use your male or female slaves. And the question for them at the time wasn't like male or female, it was kind of penetrator or penetrated. And so long as you were the penetrator, everything was fine. Um, So so I think it's naive for us to think that we're in a world today where um, same-sex sexual relationships are happening in a way that they weren't happening in the first century. I think there's you know, much more continuity than we realize. I think we're also um, mistaken to think that the Bible condemns same-sex relationships because I think actually the Bible gives us a vision for same-sex love that is more beautiful than anything that the world has to offer us today. Um, you know, we look at Jesus saying, greater love has no one than this and he'd lay down his life for his friends. Look at Paul talking about his friend Elisabeth, his very heart, or saying uh, he was among the Thessalonians like a nursing mother with her children. Um, he, he calls us as Christians to think of ourselves as, you know, one body together, brothers and sisters, comrades in arms, knit together in love. Like all this intensely intimate language that is talking about real bonds of affection, but is not sexual. And I think one of the things that, that we have done today and, and actually I think we've done it in different ways, both inside and outside the church, is that we have collapsed all real intimacy into sexual and romantic relationships. So the way that that's happened you know, outside the church has been set the, the kind of love is love mantra to say, actually, I, I should be able to have a sexual relationship with, with somebody, regardless of whether they're male or female, um, increasingly actually. It doesn't have to be exclusive to one person, you know, maybe this could, could be a polyamorous situation. I think within the church, we've often done it in the sense of saying, well, for adult Christians, like marriage is really the place for true, like actual real intimacy um, an emotional connection. And anyone who's not married is sort of, ooh, you know, a little bit on the, on the fringes. And um, we, we've lost sight of the fact that in, in biblical terms, marriage is meant to be a signpost pointing us to Jesus's relationship with his church so not an end in itself but actually a pointer to something much more beautiful and we've lost sight of the fact that that God has designed us for multiple different kinds of close relationship each of which shed light on, on God's love for us so you know of course the, the, the father image in the Bible of, of God as, as father an in incredibly important and, and intimate and profound love but importantly not a sexual love and i think we need to look at, at friend and, and brother and sister language in the bible and recognize that god's giving us another angle on his love through that that is is distinct from sort of romantic and sexual love that is is you know specifically confined to, to marriage from a christian perspective but i think often you know, we've lost that sense of of real love between believers um, outside the, the nuclear family we've forgotten that in new testament terms really the local church is the primary family unit not just the, the nuclear family we've lost sight of the fact that marriage isn't the the highest calling and the ultimate um, you know human experience but actually a, a pointer to something much better and so we've kind of bought into a lot of the ways of thinking um, that our culture has just from a slightly different angle and I think when it comes to, to questions of, of justice, we have to recognize from a Christian perspective, like every believer is called to deny themselves and take up their cross to follow Jesus. Every believer actually is called to deny, specifically deny their, their sexual desires if they are drawing them to anyone other than their spouse, if, if they are married. And so it, it's not that people who are same-sex attracted are in, you know, a, a totally special other category of folks who are having to deny. Their sexual and romantic desires. Actually, that's true of you, know, you and me as married people. It's true of uh, our single friends. Um, and it's it's all because we believe in a better love. And I think, especially for me as someone who, as I mentioned earlier, I've, always, I've been a Christian as long as I can remember. I've also been attracted to women as long as I can remember. I think if I were not a Christian, it's very likely I'd be married to a woman rather than to a man today. Um, and interestingly, actually, if, if from the non Christian uh, sort of sociological and psychological research, I'm in the largest demographic of LGBT people, i.e. Um, women who are same sex attracted, but not exclusively so to where they they couldn't be happily married to somebody of the opposite sex. Um, but I think for, for all of us, we need to recognize Jesus is our first allegiance. He is our primary, um, the, the one who, who defines all of our relationships. Anything we give up for him, we will receive back you know, tenfold. Um, we'll get glimpses of that here and now. We'll get that fulfilled for real. In the new creation and so uh yeah the, the the idea of of turning away from your sexual and romantic fulfillment now to point to the better love of jesus is not a sort of cruel expectation that we're laying on on our same-sex attracted brothers and sisters it's actually a beautiful opportunity
1: you've not only given us a very pointed challenge to understand the scriptures better in its historical context, but you've given us a very poignant vision of friendship, of love. Um, That's something that's quite compelling and it's an apologetic of a different sort. You know, it's the apologetic of community, of the ways that we engage with one another. It's not just about an intellectual argument or a, a more astute understanding of history or better exegesis of the Bible. Um, But it's a vision of life together that's profoundly compelling, um, not only for Christians, but I imagine it would be a compelling witness to the world. Um, And it's this this notion of how we engage with people that I want to um, turn our attention to. You know, these are hard questions, and these are difficult conversations. Oftentimes, they devolve into arguments. Um, You're trying to beat the other person in an argument and we have had plenty of arguments nowadays, um, plenty of heated discussions. How can we approach conversations of faith, conversations where we're seeking to persuade um, with empathy and humility? How do we we go about that?
2: Mm -mm, Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's always hard because we're always, at least I speak myself, I'm always fighting with my own ego in these situations. And there's a piece of me, if somebody says something that I think is wrong about Christianity or somebody accuses Christians in general or me in particular of hypocrisy or, or whatever it is, it's a piece of us that just sort of rises up and wants to, sh- to sh- shoot back. We are specifically told in the scriptures not to do that. We're told to love our enemies. We're told to give a reason for the hate that we have but to do it with gentleness and respect. And I, I think the, the ways in which that can play out for us in conversation is, is first. We need to acknowledge and validate the ways in which our non-Christian friends um, objections to Christianity are actually good objections and their right to have them whether it's about race or whether it's about the, you know, the way that Christians have um, often treated people that identify as LGBT or, um, you know, whatever area it is, often our, our, our first move really needs to be say, yeah, I, really, I agree with you. Like rather than to go sort of straight to the, offense, to the defensive, actually to say, yeah, you're right. And to the extent that I have been complicit in that as a Christian, I need to repent of that. Like there are, there are sins of my own sins and sins of my tribe then I need to be ready to repent of to the law, but also in conversation w- with, with friends. And I don't think, I think it's very easy for us to confuse defending the gospel and sort of standing for our faith in Jesus with defending ourselves and our own record and the, the record of our tribe. Um, but really as Christians, we should always be ready to recognize that the the, the way to move forward is, is repentance and faith, right? you know, clinging on to Jesus, holding firm to the scriptures, and recognizing our own moral inadequacy in it. I love how um, in in the first letter to Timothy, how Paul just a few verses after he has um, named same-sex sexual relationships among other sins as as things that are inappropriate for Christians, just a very few verses later in the first chapter of that book, he says, uh, this is a trustworthy saying worthy of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst he was not actually coming as a kind of judgmental, self-righteous bigot, throwing stones at people outside his community he didn't understand. He was saying, I'm the worst sinner I know. And Jesus came to save even me. And I think there's something ultimately liberating about that for us as Christians. That it, it, as we call our friends to repentance, we're not doing so from the kind of moral superiority that that Jesus can can command we're actually doing so from a position of of moral inferiority um and uh, yeah I think that's liberating and I think it can open up conversations in a different different way with friends and I think we can draw on the extraordinary riches God has given us in in the global church so if I'm talking with a friend who's a major issue with Christianity is the history of, of, of white Christian racism. I can acknowledge and affirm that. And I can also introduce them to some of my black friends who they'll be able to hear in a different way. If I'm talking to a friend whose major objection to Christianity is LGBT questions, I can invite them to my church and I can introduce them to my my friend, Lee, who's an exclusively same-sex attracted man who is living as a single um, believer because of his commitment to Christ or my friend, Rachel, who came to Christ out of a, a lesbian relationship when she was a like, I can connect them with people who they'll be able to hear a little bit differently. And I think in you know, Christianity, one of the one of the beauties of, of what we have in evangelism and in apologetics, Christianity is a team sport. And I think we need to be drawing on um, the members of our team, whether they're individuals we know or people whose books we can point people to or, or um, you know, online conversations who they will they'll just be able to hear a little bit differently
1: really compelling vision once again that you're drawing for us um relationships it's not just about arguments it's it's Mm. relationships and the community that we can present to the world um as we bring this to a close i I want to invite you to give a word of encouragement or reflection to anyone who may be doubting questioning his or her own faith at this moment Mm. Mm. what would you say Mm.
2: I love that moment in the Gospels when a lot of people are turning away from Jesus and he turns to his disciples and he says, you know, what about you guys? And I think it's Peter. who says, where else have we to go? You have the words of eternal life. As I mentioned earlier, I think it's really easy for us sometimes to become discouraged because of the failures that we see, in the church writ large or all the failures we see in our own immediate Christian community or even in our own um, lives and think, okay, there's, there's probably something better out there. There isn't. And I I find Dietrich Bonhoeffer's work especially compelling because uh, he, he talks about disillusionment being actually the path into real Christian community rather than the, the exit from it he you know he says if you're really lucky and i'm going to slightly mangle the quote but it was in german originally so that's okay um, The 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 beginning of christian community if, if you're lucky is to feel a profound sense of dis- disillusionment with christians in general and if you're really lucky with yourself and that at that point you can really enter into a community w- with other believers because at the end of the day we don't We don't believe that we are so good or that our institutions are so good or that our leaders are so good um, that that should be the most attractive thing. We actually believe we're so bad we needed a savior. And, And I think if you compare Jesus and what he offers to any other major global belief system, you will find that Jesus shines more brightly than you'd ever realized. So I think, there's a, I think there's room for that. I think I'm, I'm a big believer in people asking the hard questions and not shying away from them, which is partly why I, I like to write about the hard questions directly. But time and again, if we look more closely, we will find that they become a signpost to Jesus rather than a signpost to people.
1: Our guest on today's conversation has been Rebecca McLaughlin. I'm Walter Kim, and on behalf of us all, very special thanks to you, Rebecca.
0: The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals and sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net.